Welcome to another episode of Hear Her Sports, a female athlete podcast for all things, well, female athlete. I am your host, Elizabeth Emery. Each episode shares a conversation I've had with an absolutely amazing female athlete or women in sport. My guest and I always cover so much ground from training, nutrition, and psychology to science research, mental health, and coaching. We have an exciting episode today because pro cyclist Haley Simmons is here to talk about the recent safety issues and subsequent discussions at Tour Feminine des Pyrenees. As these things generally are, the problems at Tour des Pyrenees are representative of similar issues beyond that one race. Haley also clarifies that there were good things about the race and how it was organized. So it wasn't all big problems, which was how it had appeared to me anyway. Haley has been a full-time professional cyclist since 2016. She's a time trialist extraordinaire, having won two elite British time trial titles and 17 cycling time trial national titles. She also holds three British time trial records at 10, 25, and 50 miles, and was the first woman to break the 50-minute barrier for the 25-mile time trial. Internationally, Haley has represented Great Britain at five road cycling world championships and three European championships. She's won a bronze in the time trial at the 2018 Commonwealth Games and another bronze in the time trial at the 2019 European Games. She has also represented Great Britain at two eSports World Championships and at the inaugural UCI Gravel World Championships in October 2022. Haley races on the road for AWOL O'Shea Continental Team and represents Movistar Team Gravel Squad Off-Road. She has finished on the podium at two UCI Gravel World Series races and has qualified for the 2023 UCI Gravel World Championships coming up soon. Haley has also appeared as co-commentator and studio pundit for several high-level cycling events, including World Championships, European Championships, Ride London, Commonwealth Games, and La Course. As you might remember, Haley was on the show in episode 137. I highly recommend that one because she told us about her recent iliac surgery, which was totally fascinating. Her beginnings in gravel racing pretty much as soon as she got back to the bike post-surgery and about the Cyclist Alliance Mentorship Program, which she has been involved with since early days of that successful program. For years, Haley has been an outspoken advocate for the growth of women's cycling and equality within the sport, which is, of course, why we love her at Hear Her Sports, and makes her a perfect person to have on the show for us to discover more from her insider's view of Tour de Pyrenees, but also to find out what she believes are the issues most important in women's cycling at the moment as riders are about to start the second year of the new version of the Women's Tour de France. You can follow the racing along with Haley because she'll be tweeting from the account Le Tour Data when it starts on July 23rd. I am so pleased to have Haley here as a guest on the podcast, so let us welcome her. You know, I have a ton of stuff I want to ask you. Yep. And talk about in regard to some recent events in women's cycling. It's such a privilege to have you here. I appreciate you taking the time and being willing to join me today. Thank you. No problem. So, you know, for listeners who haven't heard the story yet, can you get them up to speed about what happened at the CIC Tour Feminine International Day Pyrenees that took place on June 9th and June 10th? And also maybe explain that you know, what the race is, that it is sort of a high level event. Yeah. So it's, um, it was scheduled to be a three day women's stage race, um, UCI uh, 2.1 level. So um, one of the higher levels of, of kind of women's racing. So just under the kind of world tour level of race. And um, it was the second edition of the race. So the first edition took place last kind of autumn so it was a slightly different time of year but yeah this edition was was due to take place um and and started on on the 9th of june as as a three-day race so i'd actually been out to the area with some teammates in early may to look at some of the routes and it was beautiful beautiful routes and, and a really challenging race for the women which is a really nice thing to see because quite often um you know, you don't see that many women's races with mountaintop finishes. And, you know, it's in 
an area of France that's kind of really iconic for for the Tour de France. Um, you know, Tour de France Femme is, is going to be racing in the area at the end of July because it's very close to the Tourmalet, which is, you know, the, the kind of major climb on, on one of their, the Tour de France Femme routes. So it was also a really good opportunity for, for teams who would be racing Tour de France Femme to kind of visit the area, potentially combine it with with a training camp um, and, and look at some of the Tour de France Femme routes as well. Um, so the race started on Friday the 9th and stage one was based around Lourdes. Sorry, my French pronunciation is is, is not great. So that's probably not how, uh, how a French person would say it. But um, yeah, it was... It was quite clear from relatively early on in the stage that maybe the road closures were not kind of at the level that maybe is expected in, in kind of high level UCI racing or even lower level UCI racing, to, to be honest. You know, cars were kind of managing to get onto bits of the route, um, actually still moving as opposed to just being kind of pulled over at, at, the, at the sides of the roads. And then around probably 60 kilometres into, into stage one, um, and stage one was 130-ish kilometres in, in total, so kind of around about halfway, we kind of got a message over the radio that the race was going to be going to be paused. So the organisation actually paused the race, and we were told that the reason was because there'd been some a, a crash earlier on that the, the race ambulance had had to attend and that the ambulance hadn't yet managed to kind of catch back up to the back of the race. Um, and that that is a requirement that there's, you know, an ambulance on hand. So we kind of paused, um, paused for a little bit to, to wait for that. And whilst we were paused, some of the riders kind of towards the front of the peloton were, were having a discussion about the fact that there had been some traffic on the course and um, and that maybe it wasn't as safe as it should be. So there was kind of an agreement between riders that we'd ride in a neutralized manner for the next kind of 10 kilometers and just, you know, see, see if things changed because, um, you know, that some of the riders had had a bit of a chat with the organizer and said, look, you know, we're a bit concerned about this. So we kind of agreed that we'd ride neutralized for 10 K. Um, and actually that next 10 K was, was a lot better that there weren't any cars on the course and, and the closures seemed a lot better. And then, we kind of started racing again and actually in the latter parts of that stage it, it again became clear that there wasn't a, as much control over the road closures and traffic on the roads as as there should have been and then um a, a lot of people have seen some of the footage that was circulated um because actually one thing that was good about the race is they we had very good very good media coverage very good kind of tv coverage it was all um being shown live which is great for the profile of the sport. But as a result, obviously, it was very evident that the safety was maybe not up to par. And in the final three kilometres of the stage, which was a circuit around around the town centre, there were quite a few incidents with, you know, a bus on the route, a car on the route, people crossing the road and, and various other things that made it um, not a particularly safe finish. Um, so after the end of stage one, there was there was a lot of discussion um, amongst riders and the kind of safety commission and, and the rider representative kind of for the race that, that, you know, has the kind of job of taking any safety concerns to the race organisation. And it was agreed that stage two, the first 25 kilometres would be neutralised in order to kind of give the safety motorbikes and the organization kind of a, an opportunity to prove that they had better control over stage two. Um, and that first 25 kilometers, again, ran a lot more smoothly. The, the race was then denutralized and we, we started racing. And then again, kind of, you know, within the next 10, 15 kilometers, there were there were more incidents. So the, again, the, the peloton stopped. We kind of stopped ourselves at about 43k um, and kind of had a big discussion in the middle of this road about what what the solution was and whether people felt safe and whether they wanted to continue racing. Um, the organisation wouldn't agree to another neutralisation. And so the peloton then 
en masse kind of agreed that we would ride neutralized to the bottom of the final climb and then race the climb which you know a kind of group agreement amongst the racers is always a, a very difficult thing and you know that kind of brings its own complications and then yeah after the end of that stage there was there were yet more discussions there were uh, team votes on whether we thought that that stage 3 should be raced or not and after quite a lot of quite a lot of debate and discussion stage 3 ended up being cancelled so um yeah the race was kind of concluded after after two stages neither of which i suppose were raced fully and in a kind of normal fashion what was your experience like during the race so during stage 1 um there were i was you know i was aware of of there being cars on the course and I've done a lot of UCI racing um, at various different levels and you do, you know, you do often see cars that have maybe managed to get onto the course, but they're often pulled over to the side and there'll be a marshal with maybe with a motorbike and, and with whistles and they'll be kind of standing, making sure the cars are kind of stationary. Um, you also normally get race marshals, um, static marshals around different points of of courses, you know, standing on, for example, traffic islands in the middle of the road, blowing whistles and waving flags to kind of indicate that there's some sort of obstacle that the peloton should be aware of. It was quite evident that there were not as many of these static marshals as you would normally expect, because there were quite a few obstacles that weren't being kind of flagged as being there. And there were cars that were not just on the course, but actually still still moving so they'd managed to find a way onto the race route and either weren't aware that they shouldn't still be driving or didn't care that they shouldn't still be driving and so they were actually moving kind of towards the peloton that that sounds scary yeah yeah it was and it's you know it's not like we were on like a fully open kind of road with you know masses and masses of moving cars but there were enough to be concerned about well, it also means that you have to continue to like, be aware of what's happening around you in a way that it sounds like it would sort of inhibit racing. Yeah, definitely. It makes it more difficult because you're not just concerned about maybe what other riders in the bunch are doing and when attacks might be going and, and things like that. But you're having to then expend additional mental energy, which obviously becomes quite difficult when you're fatigued from racing you know, thinking about, well, is there a side street there that a car could potentially, you know, get onto the course via, um, you know, is there a, is there a traffic island coming up that I can't see because I've got, you know, another, you know, I've got a hundred other girls around me in various places, you know, is somebody going to suddenly notice a traffic island, move away from it really last minute and, you know, potentially cause a crash. So it's it's extra kind of mental energy, which can be very difficult to to find during certain points of a race, especially when it's hot. You're deep into a race, you've had to work quite hard. So yeah, it's it it was you know that it was quite difficult to deal with. Um, and the other thing that the other thing that was difficult, particularly in stage one, actually, was um, after we'd had the kind of stop at 60k and um when we were waiting for the ambulance and there'd been a discussion with the organization i think some riders had obviously said like you know there don't seem to be enough like motorbikes kind of coming through to to get to other points of the course to to signal either either to stand at junctions or to signal um road furniture etc and so I think the organisation, you know, maybe had a word with the, with the with the kind of motorbike marshals to say, you know, you need to be kind of getting ahead of the bunch and, and making sure that you're kind of in place. And what happened then was, so normally, you know, the, the race will pass a point where there are marshals. Once everyone's passed, the marshals will then get on their motorbikes and they'll drive to the next point that they need to be at. 
Um, and as they're driving through the peloton, what normally happens is, you know, they sound their horns. The peloton then kind of, when there's, as, as quickly as there's an opportunity, the peloton will all move towards the right-hand side of the road, let the motorbikes through on the left, you know, and then once the two, three, four motorbikes, however many there are, have moved through, the peloton will kind of, you know, resume the road positioning that they wish to take. But what actually was happening was it almost felt as though the the motorbikes were too desperate to move through because they'd been told by the organisation, like, you need to make sure you're, you're at the next place. And so they were sounding their horns, but then almost trying to drive through the peloton before the peloton had really had chance to move. Um, and actually one of my teammates got um, got kind of clipped by one of these race motorbikes and came down with a couple of other girls. So actually one of the race motorbikes ended up causing a crash within the peloton by not giving riders an opportunity to move out of the way before they tried to drive through. Um, wow. And, and I, that was also something that I was aware of before my teammate was hit there was a, you know, I, I actually had a near miss with something very similar where, um, you know, I was on the left-hand side, a motorbike sounded its horn. I kind of looked to my right to see if there was space for me to move across. And before I'd really had chance to move, the motorbike was kind of almost up level with me. And I had to really kind of squeeze into a gap between the motorbike and, and other riders to try and move out of the way. So that was, yeah, that was um, kind of, surprising and and a little bit worrying who are the marshals um it varies from race to race and i i don't know the answer to that in this case so in the in the uk um it's normally an organization called the national escort group neg you know there's kind of uh i think race organizers will often um I guess pay the NEG to provide a certain number of of you know race motos and things like that to you know ensure the safety of a race. I don't actually know really the ins and outs of 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 that. I believe in France, and and again, I'm I'm not hundred percent sure because it's not something I've ever been involved in. But I believe in France that you can pay the gendarmerie, so the French police, to do that service. But I don't know any details of that. I, I'm pretty sure that it was a different organisation kind of taking charge of the safety at Tour de Pyrenees. Um, it wasn't the gendarmerie that were, you know, in on the motorbikes and, and doing the road closures. And I'm not sure whether that is part of what caused the issue, the fact that it was someone else and not the gendarmerie. But I... I don't have any experience of um, kind of trying to organise the safety around a race, so I I don't know, but it varies from country to country. This leads to my next question, which is, you know, like these rolling road closures isn't something yeah. new or unique. You know, it's not particular to this race, and it can be done safely. So what went wrong in this case? Yeah, so you normally have a rolling road closure. So unless you've got a race that's just you know repeated laps around one route so for example um you know the the third stage of of the ride london race which um is the only women's world tour race in the uk this year and so that the the third stage of that race was held on a circuit in central london and so the entire circuit which was around 11 kilometers was just completely closed you know for the duration of the race that's obviously easier to control because it just remains closed but most races obviously if it's either an a to b or it's a much longer circuit or or something like that you have a rolling road closure so you have what's called the race bubble and there's often often in like the the team briefings or in the the tech guide or the managers meeting they they talk you through the race bubble and they say you know if you're if you're outside of the race convoy, so behind all of the team cars and the ambulance and things like that, then you're effectively racing on on an open road. So you have to be aware that even though you might still be 
be allowed to finish and get a time, you're no longer within the safety of the race bubble. So, you, you know, you have to almost treat it as as being a completely open road. But normally within the race bubble, so between the lead motorbikes, the lead car and the back of the race convoy, you should be within a rolling road closure. And yeah, normally what happens is you have enough vehicles towards the front of the race who are driving ahead of the peloton or ahead of the lead rider to kind of almost signal that the race is approaching. You have the kind of static marshals who will move from location to location to secure, you know, key junctions or things like that um, on the route. And then obviously you have like the riders and then the team cars behind and things like that. And so that's normally meant to be a kind of secure, you know, couple of kilometers worth of space, I suppose. Yeah. And it's, it is, it is the norm. It is, it's really commonplace. Um, So I suppose in my opinion, the thing that went wrong on this occasion was there weren't enough there weren't enough bodies on kind of motorbikes, for example, moving ahead of the race and getting to key locations with enough time to make sure that junctions were, were secured or cars were moved off the race route or key impediments on the route had a body on them with a whistle to, to kind of signal that they were there and that riders should you know not crash into them for example so I, th- I think it was possibly just not enough not enough people to provide all of the kind of um yeah like safety and security which then meant that the people who were doing that job were kind of rushed and frantic and therefore potentially not doing as good a job as they would otherwise have been able to do. It also sounds like maybe there wasn't enough instruction about what that job entails, because it's not an easy job. I mean, you're dealing with cars that really want to go where they want to go. And, you know, you're having to stand up and say, sorry, you got to wait for whatever length of time it is. And it's, you know, probably not super short. And so you're dealing with a lot of belligerent people, possibly. And uh, so it does require some instruction and, and, you know, some understanding of what's actually happening. And it sounded like that was not there either. And again, like, I don't know the details of who it was that were, that were these marshals that were providing the safety. So, you know, in my opinion, having done a lot of races and come across a lot of drivers who you know, obviously want to go about their days and don't want to be held up by a bike race coming through. Some people are potentially only going to respect the police in whatever country you happen to be in, which is why it probably is really quite effective if you have the gendarmerie providing the road closures, for example, because at the end of the day, it's not that likely that somebody's going to say to a policeman, you know, you can't force me to stop here, I'm going to keep moving anyway, because, you know, you know that there's potential repercussions if you if you disobey the police. I think probably having police closures is is more effective. I don't know the organisation who it was who who were um, who were kind of in charge. I, I heard and I don't know how true this is. So, you know, this is this is not a kind of fact because I don't know but um, I heard from someone that the race organization had outsourced the kind of safety provision to a separate kind of company or business or you know they basically the organization didn't necessarily arrange all of the kind of safety aspect themselves they kind of outsourced it so that could have been the source of the problem because I suppose if you outsourced it to somebody who, or a company who um, have put in place road closures before, but maybe not for like, you know, a high level UCI bike race, then they might not be aware of just how many, um, how many bodies are required and and 
how difficult the logistics can be in terms of getting ahead of the race once the race has gone past. So potentially it was just an oversight and a a bit of a mistake that the organisation thought, well, actually we have a lot of other things that we need to organise for this race because, you know, organising a bike race is not an easy thing. There's, there's a lot of different things that have to come together. So potentially the organisation said, you know what, we, we have a lot of other things that we need to do and maybe not as many people as we could use. So we'll focus on one aspect of it and we'll, you know, hire a company to, to do another aspect of it. And potentially that's, that's where it fell down. But I, I don't know for sure because that's just something that I heard and not a fact that I know. It's, you know, I know we're talking about sort of this, and when I say we, I don't mean just you and me, but, you know, sort of the discussion about this race has really been focusing a, quite a bit on the cars on the course, which certainly is a huge safety factor. But as you mentioned, there was the issue with the ambulance. There was the issue about some of the sort of dangerous road furniture not being marked well enough. And there were also, you know, like the sprint lines at the finishes and also during the intermediate sprints and GPMs, those seem not to be marked as well. So, I mean, it just seems like the entire organization was not that great. And I know there's also been discussion that we shouldn't be blaming everything on the organizer. However, you know, from an outside perspective, I'll have to say that, you know, I want to blame them. This this is not something... They're not having to reinvent the wheel like this has been done before. And I'm just surprised at sort of how many places they fell down at such a high level Um, race. I mean, we're not talking about sort of local schmokel race. Yeah, I mean, I suppose what I would say actually is that um, in my opinion, a lot of the race routes were marked really well. So there were arrows everywhere showing you where the race was going and they were there for for the whole week before the race because um, a few members of my team travelled direct from um, another UCI race in the Alps, a one-day race, across to the Tour of the Pyrenees. And so we were kind of in the area from the Monday night and the race started on, on the Friday. And as soon as we arrived on the Monday, you could see all the arrows up for the race routes. So the race route was actually signed really well. Um, and also the, uh, the GPX files were, were available really, really early as well. So that was, was dealt with really well. And also the, maybe not so much for the sprints actually, because, um, I didn't necessarily notice loads and loads of signs marking sprints. However, the GPMs were all marked pretty well. There were, there were signs saying like, you know, one kilometer left of the climb, 500 meters left of the climb, things like that. So, oh, that's um, good to hear. Yeah. So, that was actually, those things were actually done really well. And for example, one thing that can be not a problem, but difficult in some races is, you know, you have a neutral at the start of the stage and then, and then the stage proper starts. And sometimes it's actually really difficult to see the sign that says, this is kilometer zero. So, you know, if you're somebody who wants to reset their Garmin so that you've got an accurate kind of kilometre count for for sprint points and GPM points and things like that, like you you potentially rely on being able to see the kilometre zero sign. And that's something else that was, you know, actually very evident in in the Pyrenees. It was really obvious, like, okay, this is kilometre zero. So actually a lot of that stuff was done really well. And the communication from one of the organisers was also really, really good because I contacted her back in May when I knew that I'd be doing a training camp in that area to say, you know, are there are there routes for the courses so that, you know, I can potentially go and have a look at parts of them. And, and she replied really, really quickly and, and um, you know, pointed me in the direction of where the GPX files were and things like that. So there were actually a lot of things that were done really well. And I don't know whether maybe the fact that obviously the safety was not how it should have been, people are then criticising other aspects of the race, which actually I think were done much better than a lot of other races. Interesting. And the TV coverage as well. Like, you know, it's one thing that's really important for women's racing 
is visibility because if you don't have the visibility you're not going to attract the big sponsors there's not going to be as much money in the sport and you know that makes it difficult for everyone so the fact that a really like there was really good coverage organized was was amazing like you know that's something that well you know people anyone following women's cycling at the moment might be you know, might almost be surprised that the Giro Don is going ahead because, you know, even a few days ago, there were very strong rumours that it would be cancelled last minute due to, you know, the the TV coverage requirements not having been met. And, and you know, so there, there were problems even a few days ago and, and the race is due to start any day now. So, you know, the fact that there was TV coverage organised for the Tour of the Pyrenees was was incredible but obviously that did mean that the kind of shortcomings in terms of the safety were visible to everyone yeah i was going to ask you about that is this going to make organizers reluctant to have such good tv coverage yeah potentially which is obviously you know that's a problem and yeah one thing that i'm really sad about um about the whole thing is the fact that you know this race is potentially now unlikely to appear on the calendar again because of because of the fact that the race wasn't finished you know there are then potentially going to be issues with sponsors or companies or organizations who put money into the race obviously certain parts of the organization themselves are, are very unhappy about uh, unhappy with the peloton about what happened and you know have already suggested that the race will now disappear which in my opinion is extremely sad because as i said right at the start like it had the potential to be an incredible race until last year when tour de france femme kind of came back the women have not had so many opportunities to to do these kind of big tour de france climbs and do like mountainous stage races with with summit finishes. It's still something that's kind of not that common on the women's UCI race calendar. And so, the, the, you know, the Tour of the Pyrenees offered something different and something unique, I guess. And it was a race that I was really looking forward to, to doing, um, especially having ridden some of the routes back in May. And so, yeah, one of one of the things that that's made me the most kind of sad about the whole thing is the fact that how things worked out means that we might now lose what could have been a, a really amazing race. And, it, you know, that's obviously not the result that anybody wanted. Well, you know, it's interesting, and, and I don't want to spread rumors, but it's interesting that you mentioned that possibly they had sort of outsourced the safety. And it seems like if that were the case, that's an easy fix. You know, you just yeah. sort of get that company up to speed about what they need to do. And obviously they learned a lot this race or not do that next time. And it would serve them to just say, okay, this is what we did. It was, you know, we messed up or it didn't work out and that's an easy fix. And then you have it on the calendar again. I think maybe sort of this lack of transparency of what actually happened is, is somewhat concerning. Yeah. But I, th I think sometimes you see pride with, with certain sure. parts of organizations and and actually I, I don't I don't know everybody who was involved with with the organization and and the people that I'd communicated with back in May are not the same people who have come out in the press and and made you know slightly hurtful remarks regarding what happened and about the women who were racing and obviously those people who made those remarks in the press um it feels like you know their nose is out of joint kind of thing by what happened and it almost sounds as though like their pride has been hurt and they don't necessarily want to admit that they potentially made a mistake and it, it's that kind of attitude that is then the problem because if they're like well these women act like, you know, they acted like spoiled girls. We didn't do anything wrong. They need to, you know, be less whiny or whatever it was that, that was said. 
you know, if that person who made those comments is a key person in the organization, it sounds as though their pride has been hurt to the point where they don't want to fix the mistake. They want to almost just pretend as though they didn't make a mistake and kind of not bother in the future. Mm -hmm. My biggest objection to that sort of line of comments, which was actually was the race organizer, Pascal Baudron, and I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, is it fell under the category of women should be grateful to have whatever we give them. Yes. Yeah, and it was that is really was, troubling. Yeah. And this is again this this is one thing like the people the, there were there were other people involved in the race organizations who certainly don't have that opinion. There were women involved in the race organization who I communicated with who I have a very good opinion of and actually fight quite a lot for women's rights within the sport and would certainly not come out with that kind of opinion but obviously yeah you you know there are a race organization is a big thing you've got quite a lot of different people involved and yeah so obviously he came out with those comments which is is definitely very troubling because um yeah why why should we be just be grateful to be allowed to race we should have the same level of security and respect and and professionalism as any men's race and as a region that region sees the Tour de France every year so they obviously know how to put on a bike race you know they they're used to bike racing it's not new for them Today's episode is sponsored by Endura Athletic. Endura Athletic is on a mission to create ethically sourced athletic apparel that empowers and supports athletic women's bodies. Rather than asking women to fit into clothes, Endura Athletic apparel fits clothes to women, making space for powerful lats, broad shoulders, and strong legs. Through artfully designed, sweat-tested, and well-fitting apparel, women can tackle their workouts while feeling confident in their physique, whatever shape it takes. I am a big fan of Endura sports bras. They are made to fit athletic bodies of all sizes. Mine is super comfortable and cute. I love the shape of the neckline and the quality material it is made out of. You can order your own Endura sports bra and find out more at EnduraAthletic.com or on this episode's show notes page at HearHerSports.com. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. And now let's get back to professional cyclist Haley Simmons and find out what are the important issues in women's cycling at the moment. So let's sort of expand this discussion about like beyond this particular race, because, you know, there are these issues of safety, which are hugely important, but there's a lot of stuff underneath that. You know, like I'm thinking about other issues in women's cycling, like race distances, prize money, salaries, you know, the team makeup and support. And you talked about the professionalism and, you know, also the race calendar, which you mentioned as well. Like what what of those things are super important and what do you think you know, what happened at this race, how that's going to impact sort of this other category of all these issues? Um, oh, it's such a, yeah, it's such a kind of wide, <laughs> such a wide thing. I mean, yeah, we need, we need, we need our races to be safe. Like that, that's a big thing, especially with, 
you know, what we've seen in the Tour of Switzerland, in, in the Men's Tour of Switzerland. Racing's getting faster, the equipment's getting better, the the organisations want to have exciting racing. And, you know, potentially that does mean that sometimes racing incidents occur and, you know, nobody wants bad crashes to happen. It, it's just, you know, it, it's not anything anyone wants. And to be fair, the the UCI and the CPA have identified these problems and they are kind of stepping up to to try and address them. So hopefully we will see kind of, you know, some sort of consideration of, of um, race routes and, and finishes and different descents and things like that. But, you know, so, so safety is, is being recognised. That's obviously a really key issue. With the women's side, I think a lot of it does come down to money and it's difficult to, to it's sometimes difficult to come up with a kind of order in which things should be done, I suppose, because you need race coverage to attract sponsors. You need the sponsors to put the money in, but then you also need money to kind of secure the TV coverage and there's almost a chicken and egg type thing and somebody just needs to potentially just take a risk and and you know take the first step I suppose it would be nice to have you know a, a wider race calendar a more varied race calendar for the women and to see some of the races that exist for the men have women's equivalents but again that would actually be a problem with the way women's racing currently is because you see the men's world tour teams and they've got rosters of, you know, 30 odd riders, for example, whereas a lot of the women's world tour teams will will actually only have maybe 12, 14, 15 riders. So as soon as you have a couple of riders come down with an illness or have an injury, then suddenly actually the top teams can't run a double program. So you don't actually have then enough women to kind of support all of the races that are that are then on the calendar and again it's a financial thing because potentially if the teams had more money to invest they could employ more riders and so suddenly you've got rosters of 20 women so then you can send two teams of six to two separate races that are happening at the same time even if you have illness and injuries within your squads and again, um, I think something that I spoke to you about the last time we chatted is in terms of like the number of women's world tour squads that there are, there will be 15 next year. Those 15 are the only 15 teams that are required to pay salaries. Uh, below that at continental level, some teams will be paying some form of salaries, but there's, there's no requirement. So a lot of teams probably won't be and that then creates the gulf between the teams so even at Tour de France Femme you know you might have the 15 world tour teams but then you're going to have extra teams that aren't world tour so you're going to have you know in that race you're going to have some riders who are you know the highest paid female riders in the world and then you're potentially going to have riders that aren't paid and maybe have to have a full-time job alongside it and you're going to have teams with way smaller budgets who can't afford the resources the staff the the extra support that riders on the world tour teams will be getting and so you've got this like massive gulf between between different levels of teams and and that that can make it really difficult I always get so frustrated talking about the lack of money in women's sports I mean you know everybody's talking about how you know, women's sports are coming up and it's a great investment and blah, blah, blah. And then when push comes to shove, there isn't still enough money, basically, in women's sports. Yeah, yeah because, you know, even though a lot of the top riders on the world tour teams, you know, they are paid enough that they they don't need to do anything else. They can just ride their bikes and focus on on their cycling career but there are riders on other teams who even if they're earning a salary 
you know, they might be earning a thousand euros a month. Now, that's not enough for them to not do anything else or not have support from somewhere else. Like if, you know, if they have support from parents or partners or whatever, then they, they could still be a full-time athlete, but you know, you can't support yourself in terms of like rent or a mortgage plus food plus everything else from a thousand euros a month. So they, they might say, Oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a, professional cyclists and actually they might be extremely happy with the salary they're getting but it's almost due to a kind of it's, it's kind of almost a bad representation of, of the way the sport is that you know they're actually feeling extremely grateful to be paid a thousand euros a month and that's not really we're it, back that to that grateful business again yeah it, yeah almost teams give the impression teams that are kind of giving that salary often would almost give the impression of, well, you know, you should be really grateful to get a thousand euros a month when there are lots of teams that don't pay their riders. It's like, well, actually, should I? Because can I actually live off that? No. So do I need to potentially find another job? Yes. Is my team going to be happy with the fact that I'm also working a part-time job, a full-time job, et cetera? Probably not. And it's, it's not a sustainable situation. Right. So on the commentary, I, before we talked, I listened to every single second of the coverage of the Pyrenees race. And one of the things that came up was that the growth of women's cycling is too fast. I happen to not agree with this, but I'd love to yeah, hear what also, you say. Yeah, I disagree as well. And I've, I've read, I haven't actually listened to the commentary. I haven't watched the race back, but I've read several articles recently with people saying, the growth of women's cycling is is too quick and you know it needs to slow down a bit and i yeah i i disagree as well i i i think that it's been too long that it's been accepted that you know the women aren't paid or the women are riding less challenging courses than the men or you know shorter distances or anything like that and we need to be given the opportunity to prove that our races are just as exciting. And I, I don't, I don't really see why we have to justify that we also deserve to be paid, you know, at the same level as the men or, or anything like that. I, I, I just think that, you know, the history of the sport is obviously more towards the male side, but because it's been operating for so long, successfully for the men I don't understand necessarily why it can't just kind of almost step up and offer the same for the women yeah and I agree and I, and I think that the commentary about women's cycling needs to slow down it basically implies that the women are not good enough yet which I find troubling <laughs> I think I think a lot of the women are good enough but I think the fact that nobody I think that very few teams or companies will invest the same money in the women as they do right. in the men is the problem. Because right. if if there were as many women paid the same amount as the men, then you would see more professionalism, potentially better performances, because more women would have the opportunity to train full-time, race full-time, they'd get more race experience because there would be more racing on the calendar. They'd have more support. They'd have, you know, the, the performance coaches, the nutritionists, you know, the, you know, the analysts, all the kind of resources that are piled into the men for the Tour de France, for example, where, you know, the team staff will know every inch of the roads. They'll talk to the teams about exactly where the wind's going to come from, where the splits are going to be and things like that. You you might see that in the top women's teams, but you certainly don't see it across all of them because the teams don't have the money to pay the high-level staff. So you don't get that kind of level of, of input and analysis on the women's side yet, certainly not throughout the teams. And, and it all comes down to money and it's really... It sounds like a broken record, but th- but that really is it. You know, if somebody was prepared to invest the same level of money, then you'll see the same level of professionalism 
and uh, yeah uh, so it's not that it's it's not that it's growing too fast it's that maybe like yeah you, you need the influx of money because if you have the influx of money then the growth can be it can be a lot quicker anyway because you've got more more people doing their jobs just not just the riders the staff as well at the same level as the men and then yeah you'll you'll see the same kind of racing and levels of ability across the board i think well this is a great segue to talking about women's race coverage and part of my reason for wanting to talk about this is i was watching the men's giro the three-week grand tour at the same time that I was watching the tour of Spain, the women's tour of Spain, and the coverage was so different. You know, the men's had, you know, and I watch on GCN, the men had that breakaway before and after they have, you know, four people, experts, former riders, analysts talking about the race again, before and after the race, they have great commentators during the race and the tour of Spain which they were calling a grand tour, even though it was seven days, which I found completely offensive. You know, there was none of that same sort of hoopla that the men's coverage was getting. And to me, this is a huge problem. Like I figure if I am more interested in watching the men's racing than the women's racing, something is wrong because I am, you know, like probably the best audience for the women's coverage. Yeah. So... I was having a discussion about um, some of these kind of women's grand tours recently. And so it's like different organizations as well, and obviously different times of year. So this was the first um, like Vuelta, like women's tour of Spain. Yeah. For, for the women this year. And I kind of saying, Oh, you know, it's obviously at a completely different time of year. And I hadn't realized probably because of, you know, how recent I suppose I am to cycling versus the history of the sport in general. The men's Vuelta used to be actually at the same time of year as as when the women's Vuelta was this year. And it's only in kind of more recent cycling history that the men's Vuelta has moved to be after the tour, supposedly so that like, you know, if riders were actually aiming for the Tour de France and then something happened they would kind of have another shot at like a grand tour by then going for the Vuelta a España. But I think the the organisation who put on the, the Vuelta also put on the, the women's Vuelta. And obviously with the Tour de France and Tour de France Femme, they're both ASO. And the Giro at the moment are completely different organisations. So the men's Giro is one organisation and the women's Giro Don is, is a different organisation. So some of it comes down to like, the organizations i think and you know the resources that that they put into the race i should i should inject here that the women's tour of spain the racing was amazing i mean it was yes. just fantastic yeah, yeah, yeah. totally fantastic yeah, it was. but it, it it's not a grand tour because it was only 7 days i mean there's a lot of stuff about being a grand tour that has to do with how long it is about what happens over that you know like the drama yeah, that though, happens over that time Though it is effectively one of the longer stage races, because sure. we just don't have stage races of that length. You know, of you've course. had you've got the Giro, which um, I don't know whether it's ten days this year, but it's previously been ten days. Tour de France Femme is eight days, so it you know it does actually match. I'm not saying that this is right, but it does match up with the length of the the tours of you know the other Grand Tours for women. And again, I I feel that the women's races should be longer. I'm not saying that they should go directly from the current seven, eight, 10 days all the way up to 21, because I think that is too big a jump to happen in one go. And again, it's something that's not going to be possible until you have a vaster number of teams having more resources and, and having more money, because otherwise, you you know, you can't expect the lower level of teams who are in those races to be able to operate over a, a three-week tour with the level of funding that they've currently got. But as you said, you kind of need the race coverage in order to attract the sponsors to then attract more money, to then enable the teams to 
support their riders or, or to have the facilities to have staff and riders performing over you know a longer race so it's 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 such a kind of chicken and egg like cycle and somebody at some point it needs to be broken and it's it's just how like that first step being taken to interject to, uh, and it's going to take somebody brave or a brave company to do it I think I agree and I think that's why I object to the such you know like the huge difference between the two races that I was mentioning men and women is because GCN and sorry to put them on the spot GCN could be that brave person yeah. they could have the breakaway before the Vuelta the women's Vuelta before and after the race they could do that you know like they're yeah. not reliant on like all this other stuff that we're talking about in terms of you know growing the sport in a manageable way they could just decide okay we're going to invest the money in having this great coverage of the Tour of Spain yeah they could, and I don't know. I don't know um, enough about, yeah, obviously the, the kind of the way that the decisions are being made. And I think one restriction that you do get is actually like the um, like the footage that they're yes, using. For example, that's so interesting. So, yes. So you know they could say, well, actually, we're going to have great commentary, great coverage of the the Vuelta for the women. However, if the race organization themselves are not providing a helicopter, TV motorbikes, et cetera, et cetera, then actually GCN or any other broadcaster don't have the footage with which to provide live commentary of the whole race. But they could still um, have that saying, commentary before and after the race. Yeah, yeah, they could still have the thing before and after because they could have, you know, previews of the routes they could discuss what's happened the previous days yeah so they could still have that but the in-race visibility is more down to the organization sure. yeah. um so for example i i did some work last summer for tour de france femme for ntt who provide a lot of data now i did kind of some experience work with them as well looking at the men's tour before i worked on tour de france femme and so in order to get their data with which they provide a lot of the information, they rely on the TV motorbikes because all of the riders' bikes have like transponders and chips and, and everything. However, you only get the kind of signals from those sent back to, you know, whatever it is, wherever they gather all the information. All of the signals from the riders are kind of sent back via actually the TV motos. So for the men's tour, because there's TV coverage for the whole thing, from the very start, you can basically pinpoint every single rider in the race. You can say, like, I guess, like, what speed they're doing, where they are, what's going on, um, et cetera, et cetera. For the women, there was only live coverage being provided by the organisation for the Tour de France fan last year for the final two and a half hours of each stage. So actually... That also made it really difficult working on the race because you couldn't accurately pinpoint every single rider in the race until the TV coverage started. Because the the you know the signals from the transponders on the bikes weren't being transmitted back because you relied on the TV motos um, uh, and their presence. Yeah. But you know, the decision to broadcast the final two and a half hours was something that's obviously made by the race organization right, right. so that you know that's one thing that kind of needs to needs to change i suppose the organization has to make the decision you know what we're going to broadcast 100 percent. you know we're going to pay the extra money to to make sure the whole thing is broadcast and then that enables i guess the growth of like the media coverage in other countries because it's you know gcn will just be picking it up from whoever it is at Tour de France, at the Giro, at whatever, whichever TV media company that's local, um, they'll just be picking up their feed. Yeah, I mean, and they talk about it a lot. I think what my objection is with the comparison I was making between the women's Vuelta and the men's Giro is sort of the perception of the two races. Yeah. And especially yeah. since they're choosing to call the women's Vuelta a grand tour, even though it's only seven days, 
they are then saying, okay, these two things are equal and we're giving this huge drama, huge production, stars and whistles, blah, 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 for the men. And they're doing like comparatively nothing for the women. And so it, it sets up this like really bad comparison. Yeah. And some organizations have tried to kind of address that in the past. Like uh, back in 2019, Vox Women did um, did a lot around the Giro. I think it was the Giro Rosa then because uh, it's obviously gone through a couple of name changes. But they did a couple of things around the Giro Rosa then where like every day they would have like Rebecca Charlton plus a guest. And I did it for a few days doing some of the like voiceover commentary on the stage, but they would also do some, you know, some discussion beforehand. They do a little bit of analysis after. Um, So not to, you know, not quite to the extent of the breakaway, for for example, but you know, they, they did that to a certain extent, but again, it relies on somebody providing the money for that to be done because yeah. Until somebody's like, you know what, we will pay you to, do all the recordings to hire the location in which you're doing the recordings to get all the you know the the infrastructure in place to to kind of do this and we will broadcast it until you have that then yeah yeah you're not going to see the the amount of coverage that that you should do and i agree like it, it is a bit insulting that you get so much around the three grand tours for the men and you know there's there's not the same visibility for the women yeah well what can we expect from the upcoming tour de france femme avec zwift it's it's a different kind of route this year and i think it's all going to come down to the final weekend because you've got the really mountainous stage as the penultimate stage and then you've got a time trial um, as as the final stage sd works have been incredibly dominant as a team this season so they're going to be the the team that everyone's going to have to try and challenge but obviously you've got Annemiek van Vleuten racing for Movistar defending champion her final year of racing she's going to want to win but yeah I think it's going to be I think it's going to be a really exciting race and I'm hoping that that the coverage will be good and that it will provide a really good platform for the women and you know enable more sponsors to become attracted to the women's side of the sport and see what is on offer and to invest a a bit more in our side of the sport that would be nice are you going to be involved at all are you racing um i'm 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 not racing unfortunately the team that i'm on are not one of the teams racing i would love to race it it's something that in fact i was saying the other day i was having a discussion with someone about things things that I would still very much like to do over the next couple of years of my career. And I would love to ride Tour de France Femme. Yeah, like just being able to say that you've done that is is incredible. But I will be doing some of the work for NTT again. So I will will be kind of in charge of the Le Tour data Twitter feed during, during the women's race. Well, that will be fun and interesting. So yeah, hopefully I'll be able to provide some uh, provide some insights and uh, yeah, kind of get a bit of interest up about about the women's race. Cool. Well, thank you so much for being willing to talk about all this. It's been really fun. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. A big thank you to Haley for taking time from her racing schedule to be on Hear Her Sports and to fill us in on what went on at the Tour Feminine des Pyrenees. Be sure to follow the Tour de France Femme of Zwift on Twitter through the account Le Tour Data. It'll be Haley posting. Stage one is on July 23rd, and there are eight stages total. As always, a huge thanks to all of you for listening. It really is true that it's you, the listeners, and your comments and notes that make producing the show worthwhile. It's fantastic to talk to all the incredible women that I do, but it's bringing the conversations to you and having their stories heard that is important. So I'm grateful you are here and be sure to tell your friends about the podcast. Let me know what you're thinking and wondering about. Email elizabeth at hearhersports.com or connect through socials at hearhersports. There's also a contact page right on the website. In the episode, Haley references a lot of stuff like the Tour de France Femme of Ex-Wift, Giro Donne, and a comment about spoiled children. 
You can find out more about the things that we talked about in the show notes at hearhersports.com. Hear Her Sports is a proud member of Evergreen Podcasts. For more information or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. One of my favorite shows on the network is Women's Running Stories. It's a podcast featuring first-person stories about running told by the women who experienced them. In particular, I'd suggest you check out the current episode, which features pro triathlete Sika Henry, sharing her stories about running the Comrades Ultramarathon in South Africa. I just love the quote right at the top of the episode, something wonderful is going to happen. And until next time, bye-bye. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today.